police at Michigan State University are looking for a motive in a shooting last night that left three students dead. The gunman took his own life. It's Tuesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, critics say the Biden administration needs to better explain why the military is shooting objects out of the sky. President Biden owes the American people some answers. What are we shooting down? Where did they come from? Also this hour, the good news and bad news on inflation expected out today. And a Valentine's Day love story between a Massachusetts bookstore owner, her customers, and books. Sometimes we love books for completely inexplicable reasons. The same way we fall in love with people. There's no explaining it. We just do. Northeastern winds, the men's the bean pot, partly to mostly sunny and in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A mass shooting at Michigan State University in East Lansing last night has killed three people and left five others injured. From member station WDET, Alex McLennan reports the wounded are critically injured. MSU campus police began receiving reports of a mass shooting a little after 8.15 p.m. on Monday. Following a manhunt, the suspect, a 43-year-old male, died from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound as officers closed in. Teresa Woodruff is interim president of Michigan State University. She shares her condolences with the Spartan community. We're devastated at the loss of life, and we want to wrap our warm arms around every family that is touched by this tragedy. Law enforcement have yet to name the suspect and have not identified a motive. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. In southern Turkey, at least three more people have been pulled alive from the rubble more than a week after a deadly earthquake and aftershocks. But more than 35,000 people have been killed in Turkey and Syria. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Syria has agreed to open more border crossings to receive aid from Turkey. Turkish media report 18-year-old Mohamed Jaffer was pulled to safety from a collapsed building in Adiaman province, having survived some 198 hours under the rubble in freezing temperatures with no water. The state news agency reports two brothers, aged 21 and 17, were rescued from a collapsed apartment block in Karamanmaraş province. Separately, Syria agreed to open two additional border crossings to receive aid and supplies from Turkey. But Turkey's foreign minister says it's, quote, out of the question to deliver aid to areas controlled by the PKK and YPG militant groups. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The Senate will get a closed-door classified briefing today about the three unidentified objects shot down by U.S. forces over the U.S. and Canada. Pentagon officials will likely also discuss information gleaned from a Chinese spy balloon shot down earlier this month off the coast of South Carolina. The incidents have caused deep tension between the U.S. and China. Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponed a trip to Beijing over the matter. He says he looks forward to making that visit when the time is right. In the context of the um, uh, surveillance balloon, um, those weren't the right conditions to go forward with the trip. Uh, So... When we get those conditions, uh, when, uh, uh, when China demonstrates that it wants to uh, engage in a responsible manner, then I hope we'll have an opportunity to pursue it. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Weather forecasters say that a winter storm is hitting the central plains and moving east. There are blizzard warnings now posted in North and South Dakota and in Minnesota. A second winter storm is forming in the southwest. It will move into the plains by tomorrow. You're listening to NPR News. 
from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Governor Moore Healy says her administration is getting closer to choosing a new leader for the MBTA. Former General Manager Steve Fobtak stepped down last month after a tumultuous period on the T. He faced scrutiny after a Federal Transit Administration report gave the MBTA low marks on its safety and leadership. Healy says she's moving aggressively to find a new GM. Naming a person who's going to be responsible to ensure that the tea is safe, reliable, is working, is functioning, is delivering, you know, the kind of services that our residents and businesses need around the state is really, really important. It's been a top priority for our administration. The MBTA's former deputy general manager, Jeffrey Gonneville, is leading the tea on an interim basis. State gaming regulators will receive a report today on the investigation into two of the state's three casinos. Encore Boston Harbor and Plain Ridge Park admitted to taking bets on local college sports games. That violates the state's new legalized sports betting laws, which prohibits bets on Massachusetts college teams unless they're in a tournament. State Gaming Commission Chair Kathy Judd-Stein wants to make sure casinos are ready when online and mobile betting begin next month. They have great experience to um, ensure that no prohibited events are made available for betting here in Massachusetts. The launch of legalized online betting is scheduled to begin around the same time as the NCAA men's basketball tournament. A new program at Roxbury Community College will connect more students to climate-friendly jobs. The city of Boston says the program will train students for jobs that help reduce greenhouse gas emissions in large buildings. The city says the program will help it meet its goal of carbon neutrality. The New Hampshire Supreme Court will hear an appeal today from Pam Smart. She was convicted in 1991 for orchestrating the death of her husband. As Todd Bookman reports, it's a case that gained national attention. Her own attorney describes her as perhaps the most notable criminal defendant in New Hampshire history. Pam Smart is serving a life sentence without parole for her role in the death of her husband, Greg, who was killed by four teenagers at Pam's direction more than 30 years ago. She's filed numerous appeals. The latest went before the governor and executive council last August. But rather than granting her a commutation hearing so that she could attempt to make the case she's fit enough to be released, the council rejected the petition. Smart is appealing, claiming that under the Constitution, she's entitled to at least a formal hearing. Lawyers for the state reject that argument. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Northeastern beat Harvard to win this year's men's college hockey bean pot. The final at the Garden last night was 3-2 to two in a shootout. The women's final is tonight between Northeastern and B.C. The Bruins will be in Dallas tonight to skate with the Stars. The Celtics are in Milwaukee to play the Bucks. And in your forecast, partly to mostly sunny today, the high will be in the upper 40s. Clear overnight with a low in the mid-30s. A cloudy start tomorrow, but turning sunny, it'll get to the mid-50s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. 
And I'm Asma Khalid. We turn to the recent string of airspace intrusions. The White House has cleared up one big question about the unidentified flying objects shot down over North America this past weekend. There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. That was Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. And the answer, as you heard, got laughs from the press. But it needed to be said, it's unprecedented that three fighter jets shoot down three objects over the course of just three days. Despite the unprecedented situation, though, President Biden himself has yet to offer any explanations about what is happening. For more, we are joined by NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow. Scott, it is good to speak with you. Good morning, Asma. So this is an unusual situation, I, I think, to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. Why has the president not explained what's going on? I mean, that's a great question. And the White House uh, has not uh, answered direct questions about when we can expect to hear from the president. He did not hold any public events yesterday. He is giving a speech today, but it's on a different topic. And that has really generated a lot of criticism. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell summed most of it up on the Senate floor. President Biden owes the American people some answers. What are we shooting down? Where did they come from? Whether they are hostile or not, is there coherent guidance about when to shoot them down? And I will say some of this is deliberate. The White House does not want people to panic or think that this is a crisis. So they are giving a lot of briefings. But as of yet, they are not elevating it to a presidential statement or speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, the Senate will get a classified briefing. But I'll say even if it's not aliens, even if the White House doesn't view it as a crisis, I would say three objects being shot out of the sky over the course of three days Mm -hmm. is something I think many people likely expect to hear from the president about. Okay, so what is the White House saying, if the president himself hasn't come out and spoken, what is the White House saying about this sudden surge of unidentified flying objects? Yesterday, spokesman John Kirby echoed what the Pentagon had said, that the initial spy balloon caused the military to reassess how it looks at the radar. It had been set to essentially ignore high-flying, slow-moving objects. Uh, That was tweaked, and suddenly the military noticed these smaller objects. Over the weekend, these three different objects were deemed a risk to commercial flights, particularly because they were flying at lower altitudes than that initial balloon. And I asked John Kirby during this briefing yesterday, should we assume that this many objects are typically flying over the U.S., or is there some sort of surge of activity right now? And there's not a clear answer to that question. Hmm. So, Scott, if U.S. officials are identifying more of these objects in the sky, is the new norm going to be that they just shoot down anything at this altitude? That is yet another good question without a clear answer right Mm -hmm. now. The White House says it's planning to study this more and consult with allies about it, but it's less clear how they're going to talk to China about this issue. Remember, President Biden and the White House talk so much about wanting competition with China, not conflict. They say over and over and over that they want clear communication to be on the same page. Now we have meetings between top U.S. and Chinese officials being canceled. And I think there's a real threat that relations could veer in the direction of conflict instead of compromise if this continues. All right. That's NPR Scott Detrow. It is always good to talk to you. (laughs) Talk to you soon. As we just heard, U.S. senators are expected to get a classified briefing on the unidentified flying objects later this morning. But lawmakers of both parties have complained that the White House still has many questions to answer. To talk about how a White House manages the knowns and the unknowns in a moment like this one, we've called up Josh Ernest, He's who served as White House press secretary in the Obama administration. Good morning, Josh. 
Good morning, Leila. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. So why do you think the White House is saying so little about what these UFOs are? And why haven't we heard from Biden? Well, Leila, I, I think what's important for your audience to understand is yeah. that there are basically two responsibilities that a White House you know, communication strategists have. The first and most fundamental of them is, of course, being as transparent as possible with the American people about what the president's doing and why he's doing it. But the second um, opportunity that this strategy has is to actually aid and support our national security and foreign policy apparatus. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we can actually successfully lay out pretty clearly to our adversaries what we'll tolerate, what we, what we won't, and what we're prepared to do about it if they do things that we won't tolerate. In this instance, that's exactly what the strategy and what the White House is doing. However, there are times where that strategy comes into conflict. And mm -hmm. there are certain things about what we know about this program or about these objects that we may not actually want to disclose to the Chinese. We may not want to let them know what we know. Mm. And that, puts into, into, that, that, that runs into conflict with the responsibility that those people have uh, to be transparent with the American public. I mean, this situation is so unprecedented, shooting three objects out of the sky in three days with fighter jets. And critics are implying the White House is deliberately withholding facts that the American people should know. In your view, is that what's happening? Uh, no, I don't think that's what's happening. I actually think that the White House is navigating that friction pretty well right now. Uh, as, as, the, as Scott pointed out, there, there are daily briefings with the White House right yeah. now in which... You know, both Admiral Kirby and Ms. Jean-Pierre are actually doing a pretty good job, I think, of answering questions about what's happening. They're not saying everything that they know. I don't think that we'd want them to. Uh, there are also certain situations where, uh, you know, the intelligence community is likely saying things, here's what we assess is happening. Mm -hmm. These assessments may have low confidence or medium confidence or even high confidence. Uh, those kinds of assessments are actually helpful when trying to make good, measured, strategic decisions they aren't necessarily the most helpful when you're trying to communicate clearly and publicly and definitively with the American public. Uh, so basically, from what I'm hearing from you, this is the, the strategy you would use if you were in this position right now. Well, again, I, I don't know any more than you do. Right. Um, so it's hard for me to draw up <laughs> my own real clear assessment about that. But yeah. I, I do think, here's one thing we do know at this White House. They actually have shown in the past and not too distant history that they are pretty effective at using information to advance our national security interests. About a year ago, the White House was steadily putting out very detailed information about our intelligence assessments related to Russia and what Russia was planning to do to lay down a pretext for an invasion of Ukraine. Okay. That clearly put Russia off balance. It helped fortify the, uh, the commitment of our allies to responding to it. So we have actually seen that this White House is pretty effective in using information to advance our national security interests. Um, and at least for now, that appears they appear to be doing the same kind of thing in a different context here. Josh Ernest served as White House press secretary in the Obama administration and did not have to assure the public that it's not aliens. Thanks so much, Josh. All right. Thank you, Leila. Let's turn to news of yet another mass shooting, this time at Michigan State University. 
Yeah, three people are dead. Five more people hospitalized for their injuries. Law enforcement say the suspect has also died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And this mass shooting? Well, it's the 67th this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. And that's more mass shootings than days in 2023. Arjun Takari from member station WKAR in East Lansing joins us now to discuss what we know about the shooting so far. And, And Arjun, it's good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start with what we know about the timeline for the shooting. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, what law enforcement are currently saying is that at about a quarter after 8 p.m. yesterday, they received calls reporting shots fired at Berkey Hall, an academic building on campus. Mm -hmm. Soon after, they say the incident shifted and shots were also reported at a separate study space building, the MSU Union. They say the suspect fled the scene on foot. So the result of the shootings on campus is in total three confirmed fatalities and five injured who, from what we've heard, some sustained uh, life-threatening injuries and remain in critical condition at a nearby hospital. And and what do we know about the shooter so far? Do we know why he was at Michigan State University? What the campus police have shared uh, so far at their most recent press conference is that the shooter was a 43-year-old male. They also shared that he died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound in neighboring city Lansing, uh, Michigan's capital. And they believe he died after law enforcement confronted him. In terms of why he was on campus, that's something that's still unclear and that investigators remain confused about. Here's what the school's uh, interim deputy police chief, Chris Rosman, had to say. That 43-year-old male is not affiliated in any way with Michigan State University. He's not a student, faculty, staff. And we have no idea why he came to campus to do this. So it appears that he doesn't have any connection to MSU, and this is one of many details that officials say they hope to learn more about as part of their investigation. And and how has the university responded to the shooting itself? Well, MSU is scheduled to have no classes and, and no activity on campus for the next 48 hours. MSU's interim president, Teresa Woodruff, came to the last press conference and said that the community is mourning the lives lost in the tragedy. She offered up resources to students and faculty here who've, you know, they've seen some real trauma. Mm -hmm. And she also added that the university wants to ensure that this never happens again at the campus. I should add that part of the message officials are sharing is kind of emphasizing that across the mid-Michigan region, law enforcement and local governments acted in unison to respond and are also all offering their resources to the community or anyone who needs support. So it sounds like from what you've been describing, Arjun, though, there are still some key unanswered questions. And I'm curious if you can help us understand what law enforcement still wants to know, what they continue to investigate. Right. Law enforcement uh, emphasized that this is still an ongoing investigation. And top of mind from what the investigators said is they want to know more about the shooter, uh, specifically why they came to MSU and Mm -hmm. any possible motive they could also identify. And they also want to know who are the people that are injured or dead after the shooting. Law enforcement couldn't share any information about the victims last we checked. And they said they want to be sensitive about the incident to respect their families. So I imagine that's something folks will want to know more about, especially if it's students or faculty who were killed. And we also expect more information is likely to come out today at another press conference with campus police as well as university officials. That's Arjun Takar. He's politics and civics reporter with member station WKAR in East Lansing. Thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBOR. In your forecast, it'll gradually become mostly sunny today as temperatures rise to a high near 49. Tonight, clouds move in and it falls to a low around 37. Tomorrow, cloudy skies gradually clear again for a mostly sunny day with a high near 55. It might be a bit windy. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilsden at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Starts February 25th, amrep.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Tasting History. That's the name of a new cookbook created by Lowell teacher Jessica Landers' immigrant high school students. It features delicious dishes from 21 countries, and Lander and two students share their recipes with us, along with their stories of home, love, and identity. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a love story for your Valentine's Day about a community drawn together by books at a Beverly bookstore. And we learn about the intricate worldwide supply chain that has to come together to meet the demand for roses on Valentine's Day. It's 720. You know Kansas City won the Super Bowl, right? But did you know a Massachusetts bird won this year's superb owl competition? A one-eyed screen owl from the Forest Park Zoo in Springfield won an online vote for the nation's best owl. There were 16 competitors. The winner's name is Clint Screechwood. He got some tasty fruit as a prize for winning. The zoo will also get a donation. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Asma Khalid. On this Valentine's Day, Americans will spend about $26 billion this year on dinner, chocolates, wine, and of course, roses. Rose prices have nearly doubled since the start of the pandemic. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. It is Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. Unless you are a florist. The three days before Valentine's Day, I'm having, I don't know if you want to call them night terrors, but you're dreaming roses, right? This is Rob Palliser. He owns Scott's Flowers with his two brothers. And the nightmares are kind of understandable. 20,000 roses will funnel through this little Manhattan shop for Valentine's Day. His brother Chris says they've been gearing up for weeks. Valentine's Day is a Super Bowl. It's the biggest holiday of the year for us. And there is no room to fumble. That's the thing about Valentine's Day. People want their 12 red roses delivered to their Valentine today. And you can't even really prepare that much ahead of time because most people place their orders at the very last minute. The last two days, 
That's At the end the, of the day, procrastinators still win. That's when everything comes in. The printer? Are those like orders coming out of the printer? As we speak. Those are Valentine's orders as we speak coming in. More than a thousand orders have passed through this little printer at Scott's Flowers this Valentine's. One every two to three minutes. Chris Palliser pulls a stack off the printer. Two o'clock, 204, 206, 208, 208, 212. Most of these orders are for, you guessed it, a dozen red roses. A dozen roses in a vase is going to be $135. Okay. That seems like a lot. Well, yes, it is. It is a lot. It's more than 10 bucks a rose. But Chris Pallister says it's actually barely enough to cover costs. Even though this is the busiest day of the year for Scott's Flowers and the whole global flower industry, it is not all that profitable this year. The reason? Blame the roses. Most of them were grown near the equator. They have traveled thousands of miles to be here. The rising cost of airfare, fuel, labor, and shipping have pushed the price of roses way up. You want to see the fridge? Yes. These are our roses that we're going to be using. It's like thousands of flowers right there. Correct. Right now, roses are running between about $1 and $3 per stem wholesale. That is about 50% more than last year. At the same time, customers have gotten very price sensitive. So Chris and Rob say they just cannot adjust rose prices to keep up with costs. So to try to make the Valentine's math a little rosier this year, Chris and Rob Palliser are offering a bunch of Valentine's bouquets that feature other flowers. For tulips, you keep the bottoms clean. It'll help to maintain the longevity of the arrangement. Megan Vibe is assembling the Boho Blush Bouquet, which features tulips, orchids, mums, hyacinths, and a few roses. She stands at a long stainless steel table alongside her fellow florist, silent, focused, trimming stems and leaves with this little paring knife, which is what the pros use instead of scissors. It doesn't come without its little nicks along the way, but it really helps with speed. In just seven minutes of trimming and arranging, the boho blush is ready. It's very ethereal, white, pink. The price, $185. Scott's Flowers offers several bouquets like these, full of high-end flowers, just not the one flower everyone is trying to get on February 14th. And they've been selling very well. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, roses are always king, and people are going to want red roses. It's like the panic buy. Correct. All the while, the printer turns out orders for red roses, red roses, red roses. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Love it or hate it, it's hard to avoid Valentine's Day. WBUR commentator Hannah Harlow is well aware of the holiday. She owns an independent bookstore, and Valentine's Day is one of those special occasions when she feels obligated to decorate her windows. This year, instead of hanging strings of red hearts and cutout cupids, Hannah decided to ask people about the stories they hold near and dear and feature those instead. The response was beyond what she expected. I'm not a big fan of Valentine's Day, but I am the proprietor of a small business, and the bookstore I own has a whole lot of Valentine's Day cards in stock. My favorite one reads, I'm so glad I get to spend this problematic holiday that reinforces heteropatriarchal gender norms with you. But seriously, I've often wondered, what does love even mean in a place like a bookstore? The subject comes up more than you'd think. Maybe once a day, a customer exclaims, Oh my God, I love that book. 
So this year I decided to decorate our front windows with declarations of undying love for books. I put this question to our community. What's a book you love with all your heart? Customers stood at the counter thoughtfully for minutes on end. When I tweeted the question, more than a thousand people replied. The sheer breadth of answers was delightful. It turns out A Tree Grows in Brooklyn might be the most beloved book of all time. We were hundreds of responses deep before someone wrote Pride and Prejudice. When someone finally offered The Lord of the Rings, I thought, yes, where have you been? Many people named children's books they'll never stop loving, like A Wrinkle in Time and Charlotte's Web. I realize now that part of what goes into making this declaration is the fact that it will be read by others. A beloved book can signal who you are, and that can be scary. We all have exterior personas we're trying to cultivate. Do you want to hint that you're widely read? Maybe jot down The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin. That you're cool? Perhaps M Train by Patti Smith. Are you a tried and true book lover? How about The Shadow of the Wind or Cloud Cuckoo Land? Sometimes we love books for completely inexplicable reasons. The same way we fall in love with people. There's no explaining it, we just do. Maybe that's what I've been doing my whole life, chasing that feeling of falling in love for the first time. Maybe that's what all book lovers are doing. I could have written a dozen titles on my own post-it, but I tried not to overthink it. I wrote Becoming Duchess Goldblatt by Anonymous on a red sticky, the first post-it in the window. It's a book that brings me joy, a book that could be widely read and enjoyed by others, and a book that shines light in dark places. There's one thing I'm sure about, after reading hundreds, even thousands, of these declarations of love, our windows and hearts are full. Anna Harlow is the owner of the bookshop of Beverly Farms in Beverly. She's also a contributor to WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. Read her essay and many others at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Warm up with family fun this season. Interactive art and reading spaces, plus an exhibition inspired by childhood, ICABoston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police at Michigan State University say they don't know why a gunman opened fire on campus last night in East Lansing. Three people were killed, five others were wounded, some critically. As NPR's Giles Snyder reports, police say the gunman took his own life after attacking people at separate buildings. Authorities say the suspect apparently shot himself off campus and say he is the black man shown in a photo taken from surveillance video wearing red shoes, a jean jacket, and a ball cap. Chris Rosman is the interim deputy chief of MSU's police department. We are relieved to no longer have an active threat on campus. 
while we realize that there is so much healing that will need to take place after this. The initial shooting took place at an academic building named Berkey Hall. Two fatalities were found there. Rosman says another fatality was discovered at the nearby student union. Hundreds of officers swarmed the campus and students were ordered to shelter in place. Giles Snyder, NPR News. Senate lawmakers are expected to receive a classified briefing today on the recent shootdown of three unidentified objects by U.S. military jets. The Pentagon says the three were deemed a threat to commercial airline traffic and were at lower altitudes than the Chinese surveillance balloon brought down off the coast of South Carolina 10 days ago. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across Massachusetts, and getting these chemicals out of drinking water is not cheap. WBWAR's Barbara Moran reports that means the cost of clean drinking water may soon go up. Massachusetts has some of the strictest rules in the country for PFAS in drinking water, at least for now. The Environmental Protection Agency is expected to announce national regulations in March, and they're likely to be even stricter. That means more Massachusetts towns will have to pay to get PFAS out of their drinking water. Denise Demkowski is the town manager in Stowe, which has already spent half a million dollars on PFAS mitigation. If EPA is going to lower that threshold, then you're talking pretty much every city or town in the country is going to have PFAS readings. The costs are just astronomical. So far, Massachusetts has allocated $170 million to PFAS cleanup. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Boston police are investigating a possible act of vandalism at the New England Holocaust Memorial. That memorial is on Congress Street near City Hall. Police say a video online shows a group of people kicking the glass of the memorial. Local Jewish groups tell the Boston Herald the incident is concerning, especially with the recent uptick in incidents of anti-Semitism. A border patrol station in Vermont is seeing a huge jump in the number of people trying to enter the country from Canada. Officers stopped over 300 people last month. They say that's more than the last 10 Januaries combined. The Border Patrol reports the number of people trying to cross into the U.S. from the northern border has been trending up since 2021. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Northeastern beat Harvard 3-2 in a shootout to win this year's men's college hockey beanpot title. BC topped BU in the consolation game. The women's final is tonight with BC facing Northeastern. The Celtics are on the road tonight to play the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bruins will be in Dallas to take on the Stars. Gradual clearing this morning will eventually have a mostly sunny day in the upper 40s. Tonight, the clouds return and it falls to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, the clouds slowly clear away for another mostly sunny day with a high in the mid-50s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. 
and from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldil. The latest reports on inflation are out today, and the story they're telling may be somewhat confusing. Inflation looks better when we compare prices from a year ago, but looking at prices from a month ago is less encouraging. That suggests there's still a long way to go to get back to stable prices. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now to discuss. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Leila. Good morning. So, Scott. Inflation's been coming down steadily since hitting a four-decade high last summer. What do forecasters think happened last month? It's kind of a mixed bag. If you look at the annual price change, uh, inflation is still cooling off. It topped out last summer just above 9%. Uh, By December, it was down to 6.5%. Forecasters think it was a little bit lower than that last month. But when you zoom in and look at the month-to-month price changes, it's not such a straight-line picture. Gasoline prices, for example, which helped to keep a lid on inflation in December, bounced up again in January. Uh, Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, China was relaxing its strict COVID-19 policies, and that pushed crude oil prices up. Uh, That deep freeze we had in December slowed oil refining. All that combined to boost prices to pump by 10 or 15 cents a gallon across the country. Uh, Now, in the last couple of weeks, gas prices have started to come down again. But Devin Gladden of AAA says we can't necessarily count on falling gas prices to limit inflation in the months to come. We are entering the higher priced spring and summer driving seasons, and so drivers should brace for that. It will likely be a volatile year given how much uncertainty remains around the economy. Gas prices are the most visible sign of that volatility, but it's not Mm -hmm. the only one. Uh, The used car market, for example, has been flashing signs of another jump in prices, which would be a turnaround from what we've seen in recent months. So all in all, the road back to price stability could be longer and bumpier than most of us would like. So how much longer, Scott? I mean, that's the big question everyone has. When will inflation really settle down? Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said last week he thinks we will see a significant drop in inflation this year. But he adds it'll likely be sometime in 2024 before we're back down to the Fed's target range of 2% inflation. Uh, Powell says it's gratifying that inflation's come down from its historic highs last summer. But he says there's a long way to go, and he doesn't think inflation's just going to magically fade away on its own. There's been an expectation that it'll go away quickly uh, and painlessly, and I, I don't think that's at all guaranteed. That's not the base case. The base case for me is that it will take some time, and we'll have to do more rate increases, and then we'll have to look around and see whether we've done enough. The Fed's already raised interest rates by 4.5 percentage points since last March, and Fed policymakers said in December they expect a couple more quarter-point rate hikes before they're done. Now, we're coming up on the anniversary of Russia's invasion and war on Ukraine, which has had ripple effects throughout the global economy. How has that affected inflation, and what does it mean going forward? Both the invasion itself and then the sanctions leveled against Russia in response have been big drivers of inflation. Uh, Food and energy costs soared last year. Uh, It's a reminder that, as Powell says, it's a risky world out there, and even the best laid economic plans can be upended by geopolitical shocks or natural disasters. Just in terms of inflation math, though, uh, that one-year anniversary means there's now a new higher benchmark for prices. So when we look at prices in March, April, May, we'll be comparing those to the post-invasion peaks of a year ago. And that's going to make inflation look less severe, even though in some cases we may still be talking about prices that are painfully high. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you so much. You're welcome. 
Now, a story about the payoff of persistence. In December, it appeared real workers had lost a big fight. They'd been asking for paid sick leave and had even threatened to go on strike to get it. Congress stepped in to avert a rail shutdown, and many thought the fight was over, at least for now. Well, in the two months since, a lot has changed. NPR's Andrea Shu explains. The last time I talked to Matthew Weaver back in December, he was not in a good mood. Here is America's essential workers, real workers. We have no paid sick days. It's disgusting. Well, what a difference two months can make. Weaver is a rail carpenter from Toledo, Ohio, and he is now one of about 5,000 rail workers who have just been granted four days of paid sick leave and the option of converting personal days into three more. I'm very happy to hear this, and I hope that it will carry on to all Class 1 railroads. To many people, this might not sound like such a big win, but let's back up. By last summer, contract negotiations between the nation's freight railroads and the rail unions had been dragging on for three years. So President Biden got involved. His administration brokered a tentative deal, giving each side some of what they wanted. It's a big win for America and for both, in my view. Rail workers got substantial raises, but no paid sick days. The railroads had argued that workers already have personal days and coverage for serious illnesses that kicks in after a waiting period. For a lot of rail workers, though, this wasn't enough. They wanted the kind of sick days you can use if you wake up not feeling good, because personal days, they say, have to be scheduled far in advance. Well, as Christmas approached, four of the 12 unions had voted down the contract brokered by the White House. They were headed toward a strike. To avoid a disaster, Congress imposed a deal with no paid sick time. Biden signed the measure into law. Look, I know this bill doesn't have paid sick leave that these rail workers and, frankly, every worker in America deserves. But that fight isn't over. And he was right. But in the end, it appears change came from within, at least at one railroad, CSX. That company's new CEO, Joe Henricks, says he and his team knew this was something they had to deal with. So it's really difficult, of course, to pre-approve sickness when you don't know you're going to be sick. Now, before CSX, Henricks had spent three decades in the auto industry, where workers get paid time off that can be used for various reasons, including health. In rail, he learned not only were there no paid sick days, some workers face penalties for calling in sick. And there were other issues for him to consider. The freight railroads were short workers, in part because the industry furloughed so many of them at the start of the pandemic, and a lot didn't come back. And now the rail workers' anger was getting a lot of attention. Their battle for paid sick leave was becoming a liability for the rail industry. There's no doubt that the railroad industry overall didn't get improvements to its image by what transpired over those several months. So sure enough, last week, CSX announced it had reached deals with three rail unions to provide paid sick leave, and now the pressure is on for other railroads to follow suit. In the Senate last week, Bernie Sanders called a press conference with his Republican colleague, Mike Braun of Indiana. At a time of record-breaking profits, that industry can and must guarantee at least seven paid sick days to every rail worker in America. In the year 2023, that is not a whole lot to ask. Now, word in the rail yards is that talks between the unions and other railroads have already started. So 2023 could turn out to be the year when paid sick leave on the railroads becomes a reality. Andrea Shu, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, the mix-ups created by some states and their aggressive approach to preventing Medicare fraud. And in our next hour, a former U.S. special envoy for Syria talks about the challenges getting of getting aid to earthquake survivors. In your forecast, skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day today in the upper 40s. It'll get cloudy again tonight as temperatures fall into the 30s. Same deal tomorrow. Cloudy skies gradually clear for a sunny day, but it'll be warm in the mid-50s. It's 41 degrees right now in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Now in business news, Bedford-based iRobot says it'll lay off 85 people in the coming months. That accounts for about 7% of the Roomba vacuum maker's workforce. This is the second round of layoffs for iRobot in several months. It laid off about 100 people in November following news the company would be acquired by Amazon. In addition to the staff cuts, iRobot says it also plans to temporarily reduce its robot production through the end of March. Boston-based drug maker Sarah Vance says it raised $51 million in its latest round of fundraising. The latest investors include Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Bill Gates, and Google. Sarah Vance says it'll use the money to advance three drugs. All are meant to treat diseases of the central nervous system, like Parkinson's. Harvard Medical School says it'll use part of a $75 million gift to redesign one of its buildings in the Longwood Medical Area. The donation is from Swiss billionaire Ernesto Bertarelli. Harvard says the redesign project will include a new skylit atrium. Work will begin this year and is expected to be completed by 2025. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldil. More Americans than ever are getting health insurance through Medicaid. States decide who's eligible and how to fight potential fraud. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports from Tennessee, which has been more aggressive than most. Life was upended for Lashanya Ingram last year, and a shadow still follows her around. You go search my name. She Googles herself on her phone. He says Lashana Ingram. Fraud most wanted. Tennessee posts the names and photos of people accused of Medicaid fraud. Some even wind up on a most wanted list as if they were dangerous and on the run. Ingram was one of 28 Medicaid beneficiaries in Tennessee charged last year. More than a third of them were accused of moving out of state without canceling their benefits. In Ingram's case, Tennessee announced her arrest in a press release, saying she eluded authorities for nearly a year. Ingram says she didn't have a clue until she got a ticket for not wearing her seatbelt. And so they pulled me over and they said, you have a felony warrant. I said, quit lying. I said, 
No way. I said, I've never been in trouble a day in my life. It took $2,000 to bond out of jail, even more to hire an attorney. Not until months later did prosecutors show her the evidence. During the time she was on Tennessee's Medicaid program and living in Memphis, she also filed for divorce from her husband, who lived on the Mississippi side of town. She still had that old address on her license, even though she moved to Memphis while she was separated. She showed her Tennessee lease and electric bills, and the district attorney dropped the felony charges. But the damage was done. It was horrible. Couldn't get a job. All doors was being closed in my face. For nearly a year, she resorted to selling purses out of her trunk to support herself and her daughter, and she still has big legal bills to pay. Every state has an office to investigate Medicaid fraud among doctors and other providers, but fewer crack down on patients, and fewer still publicize charges with names and photos, including a most wanted list, like in Tennessee. Chad Holman leads the TenCare Office of Inspector General and says publicity is intended to be a deterrent. It's not to blast anyone or defame anyone. It's to simply take care of the business that's at hand, hold people accountable, and do what we're here to do. But most states don't do that. I'm not most states. I'm Tennessee. I'm doing my job. That's all I have to worry about. Holman says there used to be many more arrests for far more serious charges. A decade ago, there were more people on Tennessee's Medicaid program using their government benefits to acquire and sell prescription painkillers, which is much harder to do at this point. Holman says his office tries to apply the law with compassion, but that it won't turn its back on low-level offenses. Cases that just involve residency make up three-quarters of the Medicaid fraud in Memphis, and since 2019, local prosecutors have dropped at least a half dozen cases because the evidence was so weak. Michelle Johnson of the Tennessee Justice Center says policing fraud among Medicaid beneficiaries takes time and money that could be spent on something more helpful. We aren't for people who are ripping off the state or who are intentionally taking tax dollars. But if somebody makes a mistake, it'd be great if our leaders would get out of the gotcha game and get into the getting people healthy game. Especially now, Medicaid programs are launching their first checks on eligibility since the start of the pandemic. Johnson says the prospect that a mistake could be treated as a crime won't help. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. This story was produced in partnership with Nashville Public Radio and Kaiser Health News. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and I'm so happy to say that Tiziana Deering is back to give us a preview of the show today. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Happy Valentine's Day. It's a day about flowers, etc., um, but we have a little bit different show today. So listen, we have a really good show, uh, really full show. I always think we have a good show. But there's something really particular I want to pull out from the show. So there is this high school teacher in Lowell, at Lowell High School. Her name is Jessica Lander, and she specializes in um, teaching immigrant students uh, with methods that help them be the most successful. And she has really built a community at Lowell High School. And over the years, she discovered that telling your migration stories is really helpful to immigrant students. So now every year, her history class produces this cookbook where they bring family recipes and their own stories and their traditions. And the kids, it's a professional-looking cookbook. The kids all have to cook the food and serve it to each other. Hmm. 
in the class. And so two kids joined us. We taped this yesterday. Two kids joined us, one who's just come from Afghanistan, the other who is Brazilian and Japanese and migrated from Brazil. They brought their stories. They told us their family history. And they cooked for us. And we ate their recipes. And they were amazing. And these kids are fantastic. So we're bringing you that conversation on the show today. So jealous. You always get to eat. We do get to eat a lot on Radio Boss. It's a good show for that. All right. Thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough. So why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, hosting a conversation with author and social commentator Fran Lebowitz on Thursday, March 9th. EmersonColonialTheater.com This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Falden. Fiddler Mark O'Connor is celebrating 50 years as a musician with a new memoir, companion CD and photo book. It's called Crossing Bridges, and it chronicles how, as a child prodigy, he used music to escape the difficulties in his own life. O'Connor started by telling me about making his Grand Ole Opry debut when he was just 12 years old. We were blindsided by it. By the time that I arrived in Nashville, I'd only been playing the fiddle for a year and a half. Hmm. But... My improvement was day by day. I mean, you could see a difference. The real competition was the old timers against the whippersnappers who were 40 and 50 years old trying to steal their trophies. And here you are in front of all these adults. Was it scary? Well, it was the only thing that I knew. And here's why it wasn't scary. My real life was scary. Mm. I was experiencing the dysfunctional family. Uh, my dad was a, an excruciating alcoholic, fraught with mental and physical abuse. I was severely bullied at school, sent to the hospital from beatings, just because I was wanting to play the fiddle, mm. trying to convince my father that I didn't have to work his labor jobs mm. after school that he was trying to force me into by age 12. So I could practice. I was learning not just the fiddle, but I was learning five different instruments at the same time. So when we came to Nashville, I was playing a bunch of instruments. And Roy Cuff heard me and put me on the Grand Ole Opry that night. His name is Mark I knew that I could do this, that I could play music for the rest of my life. So music was your metaphorical and literal escape. It was a total escape, and music transported me to a better place, even as a little kid. And I used my own creativity to imagine me somewhere else. How central was your mother in your music career? I mean, when did you even pick up your first fiddle? Well, I began on classical guitar and then flamenco. 
it wasn't until 11 that I found the fiddle. And uh, she got me lessons. We were a very poor family, so mm. I begged for one for three years before they were able to consider it. To, you know, it was a $50 fiddle from a local player, and, and that's how it all began. What was it about the fiddle that was different than these other instruments you had played? I had a sense that I could communicate what I was thinking through the music. I sensed the joy and the depth of it. So what's it like to listen to yourself at 11 on the violin? (laughs) Well, I was just getting started. And I was picking that off by ear. What song was that? Wabash Cannonball. Mm. I'm 11 and I had just got the violin a week earlier. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark O'Connor. I recorded the last two songs on November 7th after having had my first fiddle lesson. And bluegrass fiddling isn't what I think of when I think of Seattle, Washington, which is where you grew up. Yeah, it's a really unlikely journey. It just so happened that probably the greatest American fiddler in history had moved up there to retire. And he took me under his wing. And our lessons soon became all day long lessons. Mm. But it was really kind of unprecedented for a child and old time music, which was really an old person's game. This was Benny Thomason, right? Your mentor. Yes. What did he see in you? You didn't pay for these lessons. He took an interest in you and he taught you and he became your mentor. He saw, I think, some kind of creative bent in me. And he was able to distinguish that even as a beginner on the fiddle. Why fiddle music and not violin classical? How did you get on this path? Yeah, it was really unusual. My mother was a classical music fan. It certainly could have gone that way, a typical classical music direction. Some of the adults, some of the old timers took a liking to me and some were threatened by me, spiking my Coke with alcohol to try to trip me up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I was a kid on my own, (laughs) you can't imagine something like that happening in any music circles today. Wow. Learning the music from the legends and oftentimes performing with them and then- Outperforming them (laughs) in some cases. It was so strange to have a kid take their trophy Mm. because I was winning their competitions. I would learn from them and then enter the competition and oftentimes beat them in the contest. Incredible. Talk about branching out. Yes, you played, but you've composed. I mean, your fiddle concerta most performed out of any concerta in the last 60 years. Absolutely. I was able to imagine my violin in all these different forms and fashions. And you became the first fiddler to share the Carnegie Hall stage with the world's top classical violinists, Isaac Stern, Isaac Perlman, Joshua Bell. You forge a musical partnership with Yo-Yo Ma. Yeah. If you could talk about Appalachia Waltz. You know, Appalachian Waltz is one of my most well-known compositions. And uh, like my fiddle concertos, my violin concertos, I'm using the fiddle music language that I learned as a kid that I helped develop as a successful young musician. And I bring that musical language into the classical music setting ultimately.
that's why I wanted to write this book because I'm talking about the seeds of creativity being planted in a young mind in a young person's heart and how far they could take it. So is this book your way of mentoring young people? It is because I spent so much of my time in music education and with fiddling, it was, you know, half chops and half the heart and soul of it. And that's where the magic was. And anybody that has a chance that is nurtured by a mentor, even for a couple of years, would be enough. That's American fiddle player and composer, Mark O'Connor. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much, Layla. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Asma Khalid. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Students at Michigan State University hid for hours last night as police hunted a gunman who fatally shot three people and wounded five others. It's Tuesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reflects on the war in Ukraine one year after Russia's invasion began. Vladimir Putin has to give up on his notion that Ukraine is... um, not its own country. Also this hour, turning on the tap in Massachusetts may get more expensive as communities try to remove dangerous forever chemicals from their drinking water. It is a real problem because the cost of doing this, right, is enormous. And anger is growing toward the Turkish government as people there continue to struggle to recover from last week's earthquake. In sports, Northeastern wins the men's bean pot, mostly sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities say three people were killed at Michigan State University in East Lansing last night in a mass shooting. Five other people were critically wounded. From Michigan Radio, Brett Dahlberg says police located the gunman after searching for several hours, and the man took his own life. Police say hundreds of officers were involved in the search. They say they followed their active shooter protocol and moved toward the threat, but the suspect eluded them on the MSU grounds and was found off campus. Upwards of 50,000 students are enrolled at MSU. Some of them are graduates of Oxford High School, about 90 minutes away. A shooting there just over a year ago killed four people. Brett Dahlberg reporting. Senators will receive a closed-door, classified briefing today about the unidentified objects that the U.S. military shot down over the past few days over North America. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers want to know if the objects are being used for surveillance. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the incidents should be free from partisan sniping. Congress is going to conduct a careful bipartisan examination and also look into why U.S. authorities didn't find these Chinese surveillance balloons sooner. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell pointed his finger to the White House, saying President Biden owes the American people answers. Are there benign science projects and wayward weather balloons or something more nefarious? President Biden on Monday ordered a new government-wide effort to look into the incidents, but has offered few answers about what the unidentified objects were, where they were from, and what they were doing. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. New numbers on the U.S. economy and inflation are due out this morning from the Labor Department. As NPR's Scott Horsley reports, these numbers are expected to show another decline in the annual rate of inflation. Forecasters think today's report will show that annual inflation continued to cool in January for the seventh month in a row. But the report's also expected to show an acceleration of price hikes between December and January, fueled in part by rising gasoline prices. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said last week he expects to see a significant drop in inflation this year, but Powell cautioned it's likely to be 2024 before inflation settles back down to the 2% range that indicates price stability. The central bank has been aggressively raising interest rates in an effort to curb inflation. Fed policymakers have signaled that additional rate hikes are likely in the coming months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Former South Carolina Governor and United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley has announced she is running for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. She posted the news this morning on social media. Haley will be running against her old boss, former President Donald Trump. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey says she's working with the Biden administration to expand train service in the state. Healey says she brought up the so-called East-West Rail Project while visiting Washington last week. That project would increase, increase train service between Boston, Worcester, and the Berkshires. The governor says Washington is supportive of the idea. Both internally within our own administration, we're working very hard on this, and I know it's going to require and uh, involve the support of our federal delegation and the administration on this, but I'm confident and hopeful that we can work together to see that through. While in Washington, Healy also appealed for federal funding to help rebuild the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. The federal government rejected a request last month for nearly $2 billion in funding. The state agency that helps Massachusetts residents get health insurance coverage is expecting a surge of new enrollees this spring. The Massachusetts Health Connector helps people find subsidized coverage when they can't get health insurance through an employer or other sources. Acting Executive Director Audrey Gastire says the agency will start building public awareness about the signups next month. This is going to be a tremendous undertaking, really one of the largest coverage transition events the Commonwealth has seen since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. So it's really important that there's broad awareness. Gastire expects as many as 200,000 people to enroll because pandemic-era Medicaid rules are ending in March. Those rules required state Medicaid programs to keep people insured even if they were no longer eligible. Gaming regulators will meet today to talk about how they're going to handle casinos that violated sports betting rules. Encore Boston Harbor and Plain Ridge Park Casino say they took bets on local college sports games. That's against a gaming law that prevents nearly all betting on local college teams. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is worried there could be more problems when legalized online sports betting starts next month. Scientists at MIT are working on an ingestible magnetic sensor that'll help diagnose gastrointestinal issues. Authors of a study on the device say the sensor can be tracked from outside the body to precisely pinpoint spots where a person's digestion is slowed. MIT professor Gio Traverso says a similar device is used in cardiology. 
heart monitors can monitor your rhythm, essentially, your heart rate. Similarly here, what we're envisioning is really a system that can monitor the GI tract movement uh, while someone is at home. Traverso says the portable sensor will reduce a patient's exposure to x-rays and invasive procedures and cut down on hospital visits. Further research on people is expected to take a couple years. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. Northeastern is this year's men's college hockey beanpot winner. The Huskies beat Harvard 3-2 in a shootout last night at the Garden. The women's final is tonight with Northeastern against BC. The Bruins are back in action tonight as they visit the Dallas Stars. The Celtics will be in Milwaukee to face the Bucks. Partly to mostly sunny today, the high will be in the upper 40s, clear overnight with a low in the mid-30s. A cloudy start tomorrow, but turning sunny, it'll get to the mid-50s. It's 42 degrees right now in Boston at 8.07. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning, I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldid. This past weekend, more flying objects were shot down. This after a Chinese spy balloon was downed earlier in the month. On the heels of that incident, Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled a trip to Beijing that would have been the first by a member of President Biden's cabinet. It's just one of the challenges that America's top diplomat has been managing, among them a devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria and the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We spoke with Secretary of State Blinken in a wide-ranging interview about the various crises on his plate, beginning with rising tensions with Beijing. We're committed to responsibly managing the competition between the United States and China. And uh, we look to Beijing to do the same thing. This particular action, sending the surveillance balloon over the heart of the United States, uh, was an irresponsible act and, of course, a violation of our our sovereignty uh, and of international law. So, That's what's, uh, I think, critical, uh, but it doesn't take away from the fact that uh, we are committed to finding ways to responsibly manage it, uh, to engage. We believe that uh, diplomacy uh, engagement is important. In fact, this only underscores the importance of having lines of communication. That was, um, in part, the the purpose of the trip that um, I had intended to take. But in the context of the um, uh, surveillance balloon, Um, those weren't the right conditions to go forward with the trip. Uh, So when we get those conditions, uh, when uh, when China demonstrates that it wants to uh, engage in a responsible manner, then I hope we'll have an opportunity to pursue it. Now, China has said this is no different than what the U.S. has done. They've seen 10... um... We do not not send uh, spy balloons over China, period. Okay, let's move on to the earthquake. You know, as we're speaking, I think the death toll now is above 36,000 lives. Um, But it's also highlighted beyond the tragedy of it all. It's highlighted the neglect and complications of getting help Mm -hmm. to Syria and Syrians, especially in opposition-controlled areas. Well, let me say two things. First, uh, this earthquake is devastating beyond, uh, almost beyond belief. This is a once-in-generations event, and... I'm afraid that what we've already seen in terms of lives lost, people injured, livelihood destroyed, is only going to get worse uh, over the, uh, the days and weeks ahead. At the same time, yes, I very much agree. 
we need to see more of these border crossings opened. And we've been in a situation for years where every year, every six months, we have to go to the United Nations and get a Security Council resolution that authorizes uh, border crossings. Each and every time, Russia tries to shut them down, and we're, we're down to one. That one at Bab el-Hawa was actually disrupted by the, the earthquake for, uh, for a day. The roads were so bad that nothing could, could get through. That's now operating, but there are multiple other crossings. NGOs are able to use them. Uh, UNAID is not absent having some kind of authorization. Uh, and there's absolutely no excuse, no excuse for not going forward with opening more crossings. So we're speaking one year into the Ukraine war, and you've had to really strike a delicate balance since the beginning, even before the invasion. Um, the whole conversation was about calibrating this right. No sanctions before, so there was no excuse for an invasion. Then there was sort of a drip drip of providing weaponry. Russia's not backing down. They're taking more of Eastern Ukraine. They plan to take more. They're on the precipice of a new offensive. Where does it go from here? Well, let me say two things. First, just to back up for one second. Yeah. Um, from day one, when we saw this coming, and we yeah. saw this coming months before it happened, we tried to warn the world. We tried to stop the Russians from going forward. We engaged in intense diplomacy with Russia for months. And even as we were doing that, we were quietly making sure that Ukrainians had in their hands uh, the tools that they needed, the weapons they needed to repel it. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. We've tried to make sure as the battlefield changed and moved and what was needed changed, that we were able to adapt to that. So I don't think it's been a, a drip drip. On the contrary, it's been mm. making sure that Ukrainians have what they need when they needed it, just to make sure that we're clear on that. The second thing is that the Ukrainians, because of their extraordinary courage and resilience, have done a remarkable job, not just in repelling the aggression, but taking back a significant amount of territory that was taken from them. Right now, it is a, in many ways, horrific war of, uh, of attrition with terrible losses. And we see huge losses on the, uh, on the Russian side. I think here's the challenge. No one, no one wants peace more and more quickly than the Ukrainian people because they're the ones who are suffering from this aggression. But it also has to be a just peace and a durable peace. It has to be a peace that reflects the principles of the United Nations Charter uh, that preserves Ukraine's territorial integrity. Uh, because if we ratify the seizure of land by uh, another country and say, that's okay, you can go in and take it by force and keep it, that will open a Pandora's box around the world for would-be aggressors that uh, will say, well, we'll do the same thing and get away with it. Hmm. Vladimir Putin has to give up on his notion that Ukraine is um, not its own country, that it needs to be erased from the maps and subsumed into Russia. He's already failed at that, but he seems to be uh, to continue to believe that um, that's what he's trying to achieve. And unless he's disabused of that notion, it's hard to see how peace can really move forward. In the time since we spoke to Secretary Blinken, the United Nations announced that Syria has agreed to open two new border crossings from Turkey in an effort to help deliver much-needed aid. Secretary Blinken also referred all questions on those unidentified flying objects to the Department of Defense. And one more note, you can hear more reflections on the war in Ukraine, including more from the Secretary of State, by checking your local stations for NPR's special report, Russia's War in Ukraine, One Year On. 
We just heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He was describing last week's earthquake in Turkey and Syria as a once-in-generations event, warning that the situation could only get worse. For people in northern Syria who have already suffered through more than a decade of war, this is another major humanitarian crisis. The earthquake has left thousands dead. Tens of thousands are now homeless and in dire need of basic supplies. Aid has been slow to reach the region, and enormous challenges remain. Joining us now is Joel Rayburn. He's the former U.S. Special Envoy for Syria and the director of the American Center for Levant Studies. Good morning, sir. Good morning. So based on what you know, Joel, can you give us a sense of what this disaster looks like in northern Syria in the absence of international aid? Yes, you have large cities essentially rubbled to the ground. The extent of the damage is very similar to what has hit Antakya, Turkey, where a massive city uh, that's that's just raised to the ground. The infrastructure has collapsed. Uh, people are, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, have lost their homes. They're sleeping out in streets or in buses or mosques with no shelter and so on. And all of the aid infrastructure that did exist there, the NGOs, has been damaged. A lot of their infrastructure has been wiped out. A lot of NGO workers have been killed or their families have been uh, killed or, or wounded. So it's a, it just an apocalyptic disaster. Mm. You know, international aid to Syria following this quake has been really slow. And the U.N., in fact, has admitted that it failed people in northern Syria. What's been the primary challenge in delivering aid? Well, the main obstacle to aid into northwest Syria, uh, which is opposition-held territory Mm -hmm. for uh, more than 10 years, has been the Assad regime itself. The Assad regime has basically besieged that area. They've been waging war even on the civilian populations of that area. So there's been no possibility for an aid infrastructure to come from within other parts of Syria itself. On top of that, uh, the international aid has flowed largely through the UN, and that was a decision that the United States and the EU and Turkey made over years was to essentially rely solely on the UN to deliver aid uh, across the border from Turkey. The Russians have been able to use their Security Council veto to block the use for the UN agencies of all but one border crossing, mm. Babel Hawa. And, and Babel Hawa, as Secretary Blinken said, was damaged. But we did get word right this morning that, that Syria, it seems, has apparently agreed to allow UNA deliveries through two other border crossings from Turkey. Is that right? Yes. Now, that's a very curious situation because those are two border crossings that uh, Assad doesn't hold. So his approval was not needed okay. uh, in order for Turkey and the rest of the international community to use those. Uh, so this looks to me, this has Russian fingerprints on it, that it was a demand that the Russians made to Secretary General Guterres uh, to publicly ask Assad for access to those border crossings in, in as sort of a, a nod to Assad's national legitimacy. Okay. Meanwhile, the U.S. is seeking a Security Council resolution that would allow the U.N. agencies to use those crossings for an extended period of time, which they used to do. Mm. It was the Russians who blocked uh, their usage in the first place. And our understanding is that these border crossings would be temporarily opened for at least three months. So what difference will that make in terms of allowing additional aid through? Well, it's huge because uh, the the main aid hub for international assistance going to northwest Syria is in the city of Gaziantep, a large Turkish city, which was damaged in the earthquake, but not as badly as Antakya. 
And the two border crossings that are closest to Gaziantep, they're within an hour's drive, uh, Bab al-Salama and al-Rai, are the two that the Russians have blocked the UN agencies from using for more than two and a half years. So to open those back up, mean aid can flow straight from Gaziantep down into the worst afflicted areas of northwest Syria. So it, it has to be done. It's just 90 days is not going to be enough. So mm -hmm. it's right for the U.S. and our allies to seek a new Security Council authorization for them. All right. Joel Rayburn, thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. This is NPR News. Arupa Shinoy, coming up on Morning Edition. The Red Cross discusses its efforts to reach prisoners of war on both sides of the Ukraine war. And we hear about an artist who makes bells out of bullets and pieces of melted-down guns. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. Book sales declined last year, but not in the romance genre. And one Baltimore book club might help us understand why. I was like really raring to do a romance book club for the women who may feel nervous or made to feel ashamed of wanting to read this type of literature. Breaking up with the stigma on romance novels. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. The toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across the state, and clean drinking water may get more expensive. Check out the start of our week-long reporting project at 845, and check it out all week at WBUR.org. It'll gradually become mostly sunny today as temperatures rise to a high near 49. Tonight, clouds move back in, and it falls to a low around 37. Tomorrow, cloudy skies gradually clear again for a mostly sunny day with a high near 55. It might be a bit windy. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you who donate, to this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Asma Khalid. The International Committee of the Red Cross has been able to connect families to POWs on both sides of the Ukraine war. And there are many more that they're hoping to reach through negotiations with the Ukrainian and Russian governments. The organization is also providing humanitarian aid to the millions who have fled Ukraine or who have stayed in the country and are living in dire conditions. Martin Schwepp is director of operations for the ICRC, and he spoke with my colleague A. Martinez. So tell us about the work you're doing in Ukraine and in Russia. These millions who have been displaced, but also hundreds and thousands of millions who are still staying behind and are often living under very difficult circumstances with barely a roof over their head. We try to support them as good as we can, uh, providing often the very basics. It can be as simple as a heating point, a charging point for a phone, or reestablishing water points so that people can have access to the very basics. And you mentioned some of the basics that they lack and how something that seemingly is so little for maybe us charging our phone is so vital for them. It's a lifeline to just get in contact with anyone that's familiar to them or maybe even family. Indeed, I've now spoken about the material conditions, but we should not underestimate also the impact on the mental well-being of such a conflict. And as you rightly say, uh, staying in contact with family members is particularly important at times of conflict. Martin, does the Red Cross have an estimate of how many uh, have been taken prisoner in the war so far? Um, I can't speak to numbers of how many prisoners there are in this particular conflict, but indeed we need to estimate that there are thousands who have been taken prisoners since uh, over the last year. What about the conditions that you've been hearing about when it comes to those camps? We um, have been able to visit prisoners of war in this conflict on both sides. And one of the main goals for us is indeed to assess the conditions of uh, the prisoners and to discuss our findings as well confidentially with those who are holding them. And we are not sharing what we see precisely in public, but rather sharing recommendations that we observe uh, with the authorities. Are there any stories that you can share Martin, from people that have been just looking for any sign of any family members in, at these, some of these camps. We've received over 50,000 emails and phone calls over the last 12 months from relative inquiring about the safety and well-being and being worried about it. And sometimes the stories are really heart-wrenching and heartwarming. I just have one story in mind of a mother... Um, a spouse who called us and then put the little girl on the on the phone uh, who just wanted to make sure that we passed the message to her father that she forgives him for missing his, uh, her birthday and that she hopes that he will be back soon. When people think of the Red Cross, they think, or at least they, they imagine that it means hope, hope that uh, that something's being done. What do you tell people? Indeed, as uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross and as humanitarians, we cannot give up hope. We need to work every day uh, because people approach us in hope that we are able to find their brother, to find their son, uh, to find their daughter, and that we can provide help and that we can provide support. We've been able to transmit information over 9,000 times to family members about somebody who might have been missing or separated. Typically, Martin, how long does it take to find people? And how likely are you to find people? 
There is really no typical answer to that. It can be that somebody calls us and we have already registered mm. somebody as a prisoner and we can immediately say, look, we know this person and uh, you could write a message to him that we could transmit so that, um, that he has some news from you or vice versa. So that can go very fast. But also from other contexts outside the current conflict we're talking about, um, we know how long it can sometimes take to find information. Martin Schwepp, Director of Operations of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Martin, thank you. Thank you very much. Last night, Americans learned of yet another mass shooting, this time at Michigan State University. Police say a gunman shot and killed three people and injured five others before taking his own life. The attack in Michigan is one of nearly 70 mass shootings that have occurred in the United States since the start of 2023. Stephanie Mercedes, an artist based in Washington, D.C., responds to the violence by turning guns into instruments of mourning. NPR's Netta Ulubi visited her current exhibit at a DC gallery. The sculptor stands in sweatpants inside an old graffiti church, now an art gallery. I'm Mercedes. I am a DC-based queer Latinx artist. I melt down weapons and transform them into musical installations and musical instruments. Most of those instruments are bells. Bells cast out of melted bullets and small sections of guns, including triggers. They are, she says, instruments of mourning. They cleanse. They knell. I decided to work with weapons because, uh, well, really because of the Orlando Pulse Club shooting. Because I'm gay, I'm Latina, and I easily could have been there. Most of us, Mercedes points out, could be anywhere a mass shooting happens. Part of her work involves recording the sounds of weapons melting in her furnace. They become soundscapes for her shows. Guns are normally a combination of galvanized steel and aluminum, so I have to cut those parts down and then melt them at different temperatures or through different casting processes. As casters, we wear these big leather kind of aprons and we're completely covered in leather gear because molten metal is very dangerous for your body. But there's something incredibly meditative about that process because in that moment, you're holding this strange transformed liquid metal and you only have a few seconds to like pour it into a shape that truly it wants to become. Many of Mercedes' bells are not beautiful. Some look like the weapons they used to be. Others are small, twisted, jagged bells that look like primitive relics. That's something, the artist says, she hopes all guns will one day be. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, anger is growing as Turkey's government struggles to shelter thousands of people made homeless by last week's earthquake. It's 829. Follow the news all day with WBUR. You can stay with us no matter where you go. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Five students at Michigan State University remain hospitalized in critical condition following last night's shooting on campus in East Lansing. Three other students were killed. Police say the gunman took his own life. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Brussels for this week's meeting of NATO defense ministers. As Terry Schultz reports, Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine will be the focus of the talks. Austin says Russian President Vladimir Putin still believes he can wait out the international community's resolve to support Ukraine. But almost a year after Russia invaded Ukraine, Austin says Kyiv's allies remain united. But he warns with a spring offensive from Russian forces possibly already underway, Ukraine's need for more lethal aid is urgent and that now is a crucial moment. Republicans in Congress are among those criticizing President Biden for having little to say publicly about the recent shootdown of three unidentified objects by the U.S. military. NPR Scott Detrow says the three were brought down after a Chinese surveillance balloon was shot down off the coast of South Carolina a week after first entering U.S. airspace. The White House has not uh, answered direct questions about when we can expect to hear from the president. He did not hold any public events yesterday. He is giving a speech today, but it's on a different topic. And that has really generated a lot of criticism. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Healy administration is taking steps to give underserved communities a larger voice in environmental policy. A new Undersecretary of Environmental Justice and Equity will advocate on behalf of those groups. And as WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, a well-known environmental advocate will be the first person to hold the new position. As another advocate put it, Maria Belenpower is the real deal. For more than a decade, she's worked on behalf of residents of Chelsea and East Boston, two lower-income communities with long histories of environmental pollution. Roseanne Bongiovanni has worked with Power for over a decade, most recently at the nonprofit Green Roots. We're really proud and impressed and excited about this opportunity that she'll be elevating environmental justice really throughout the state and bringing that lived experience that we all talk about um, to the state and really helping us to to elevate all of the issues that we are screaming about every single day. Power has served on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council since it was formed in 2021. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. A new report shows a woman convicted of falsifying drug evidence at a state crime lab in Jamaica Plain may not have acted alone. Annie Dukan was originally the only person blamed for sending in bad results from the Hinton lab. Newly released documents show that the inspector general recommended that other chemists also be charged. Defense lawyers tell the Boston Globe they plan to ask judges to throw out any convictions that came from testing at that lab. The mayor of Methuen is in the hospital. The chief of staff for Mayor Neil Perry says the mayor is in a Boston hospital while doctors run tests to figure out what's behind his recent health issues. Perry is 64 and has had some health issues in the past. His office tells the Eagle Tribune that despite the mayor's absence, city government is operating normally. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. 
Northeastern beat Harvard 3-2 in a shootout last night to win the men's college hockey beanpot title. BC beat BU in the consolation game. The women's final is tonight with BC taking on Northeastern. The Celtics will be in Milwaukee tonight to play the Bucks. The Bruins will be in Dallas to skate with the Stars. Gradual clearing this morning will eventually have a mostly sunny day in the upper 40s. Tonight, the clouds return and it falls to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, the clouds slowly clear away for another mostly sunny day day with a high in the mid-50s. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Asma Khalid. There is grief over the more than 35,000 people who have died so far as a result of last week's earthquake. But in Turkey, that is mixed with anger over the government's response. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been deflecting blame for what he calls the disaster of the century. But he's under increased pressure after old videos have emerged showing him praising a policy of forgiving construction violations, even for some of the very buildings that collapsed and killed thousands in the earthquake. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Istanbul and joins us now. Good morning, Daniel. Hi, Asma. So why would the president of Turkey have allowed unsafe buildings to be built in this earthquake-prone area? Well, it means that housing gets built a lot faster and a lot more cheaply. Uh, Let me play you this video from 2019. Erdogan was on the campaign trail for his party and touting housing projects in Marash, which ended up being one of the most hard-hit areas from the earthquake. Let's listen. İmar barışıyla toplam... 144,556 Maraş'ta vatandaşımızın sorununu çözdük. He's saying we solved the problem of 144,156 citizens of Maraş with zoning amnesty. Now, amnesty means uh, some contractors who don't build according to earthquake code can just pay a fine and all is forgiven. For Erdogan, this is all about economic growth. Turkey's economy has been booming with these massive construction projects. It's helped keep him in power all these years. But now after the earthquake, the government says it's arresting contractors who helped build these shoddy buildings that collapsed. Although we're seeing reports now of tens of thousands of these amnesty certificates granted by the government in these earthquake struck areas. So, Daniel, how are people that you've been speaking with responding to this situation? Are, are they blaming Erdogan specifically? Are they you know, blaming the way things broadly get done in the country? I spoke to some university students who are actually being forced to leave their dorm to make way for earthquake evacuees. And they said, you know, everyone has been worried for a long time about buildings not being safe enough in earthquake zones. I met this one young law student at a protest. She gave only her first name, Aisha Noor. She fears she could get in trouble for criticizing the government. And she says her family lives in one of the cities that was hit by the earthquake. Their home is okay, uh, but they made sure it was built safely before they moved in. We researched that. We looked like, can you give us the official report if it's safe? So that's why we didn't have any problems with it, um, thank God. But just two blocks away, people died. 
And I know Istanbul is also in a seismic zone. And I asked her about these new signs in the Istanbul metro asking people to prepare an emergency bag in case of an earthquake. It's garbage. They're like, we're not going to make the building safe, but you should have uh, water, a bag, food, so you will deal with it. When I read it, it's like they're mocking with us. You know, there are elections that are supposed to be held this spring, but already there are calls from within Erdogan's party to postpone the election because of the earthquake. It's hard to see how you can even have voting in some of these damaged areas, but it's also hard to see why Erdogan would even want an election right now, given the trouble he might be in. But, you know, many people are not really focused on these politics now. Their priority is to help people get through this crisis and to help people grieve. All right, that's NPR's Daniel Estrin. Thank you so much. You're welcome. According to the Federal Department of Education, there are around a million homeless children in the U.S. The Department of Housing and Urban Development counts far fewer. That's because the agencies have different definitions of what makes a child homeless. And as Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting explains, that has real consequences. Mid-morning on a weekday, when there's a rap on Keisha Gibson's motel room door. Hey, babies. Yeah, I figured y'all were sleeping. Spread it out on the floor, so. That's June O'Neill, longtime advocate for educating at-risk youth in Macon. I figured that you needed some linens up here, oh, don't you? And I got some food in the car for you, too. Okay. Gibson is living in this one room with her seven children. I got evicted from my house because I wasn't able to go back and forth to work. Now Gibson works at a fast food restaurant she can walk to. That's how she affords this motel room for $900 a month. It's okay, but it's like, it's just all of us in one space. There's a technical term for how Gibson and her kids are living. Double up. That's Danielle Jones. She works with homeless students for the Bibb County School District. So you might have three sisters living in a three-bedroom and each have four or five kids each. Or like Gibson, have too many people in too little space, which can be stressful. Jones says under the McKinney-Vento Act, the federal law that regulates education for the homeless, doubled up is just one of the definitions of a homeless student. Is anyone that lacks a fixed, adequate, or permanent nighttime residence. So those are kids that are living in hotels, motels, shelters, Doubled up in a motel, Gibson's kids hit the definition twice. According to federal data, being homeless slashes their odds of graduating high school by some 30 percentage points compared to the national average. They're also less likely to graduate than students who also struggle financially but who have a stable address. And so that's why McKinney-Vento requires public school districts across the country to offer special support. School supplies, uniforms. There's tutoring and special transportation, all aimed at keeping kids enrolled in the same school even as they move from place to place. But McKinney-Vento does not allow schools to help students with arguably their most basic need, housing. That falls to the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and their rapid rehousing program. It provides rent for up to six months. But remember Danielle Jones at Bibb Schools and her definition of a homeless child? People that are doubled up. That's not homeless to HUD. Carlton Williams oversees HUD's rapid rehousing in Macon. He says HUD has its own definition. Meaning you're literally homeless with no roof over your head or you're running from domestic violence. So right now, Keisha Gibson, living in a motel, isn't homeless, according to HUD, and so neither are her kids. 
In the past, she was and did qualify for housing aid from HUD. When she was evicted last year, she applied again, but was turned away despite her kids' needs. These are reasons only a tiny fraction of the kids Danielle Jones with Bibb Schools knows are homeless receive housing support. And nationally, while HUD says there are about 81,000 homeless children, the Department of Education counts over a million. Barbara Duffield is executive director of Schoolhouse Connection, a D.C.-based nonprofit aimed at educating homeless youth. Any homelessness policy that's based only on adults and not taking into consideration how children experience homelessness and the harm it does is ultimately failing the entire family. So Duffield would like to change the policy and align HUD's definition with the Department of Education's. Last year, two bills in Congress would have done that. Despite bipartisan sponsorship, neither version of the Homeless Children and Youth Act got out of committee. Meanwhile, some homeless advocates outside of education say that adding hundreds of thousands of people to HUD's roles without more funding may not accomplish much. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, why the presence of so-called forever chemicals may mean more expensive drinking water in Massachusetts. Skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day today in the upper 40s. It'll get cloudy again tonight as temperatures fall to the 30s. Same deal tomorrow. Cloudy skies gradually clear for a sunny day, but it'll be warmer in the mid-50s. Right now it's 43 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales Investments, dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis through the Fuss Family Mental Health Initiative, aimed at tackling the mental health challenges facing young people in under-resourced communities by providing support for systems of outreach, prevention, and therapeutic programming, and training for valued clinicians. Now in business news, Springfield-based Northeast Healthcare Group says it plans to close all four of its nursing home facilities in western Massachusetts. Those homes are in Springfield, Westfield, and Chicopee. The closures are expected to displace about 300 elderly residents. Northeast Health says the closures are because of a mandate from the state's Department of Health. It prohibits long-term care facilities from having more than 10 beds per room. More than 350 people would also lose their jobs as a result. A real estate developer says he wants to build new lab space and housing near the Broadway T-Stop in South Boston. The land is currently owned by Mass Bay Credit Union, which also plans to build a new headquarters there. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Black Mental Health Graduate Academy, supporting and mentoring grad students in mental health counseling and psychology. WilliamJames.edu and CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBTeam.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across Massachusetts. Removing those chemicals is not cheap. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the cost of clean drinking water may soon go up. The brand new water treatment plant in Littleton is not a head-turning piece of architecture. It kind of looks like a field house or maybe an overgrown shed. A thing of beauty, huh? <laughs> a, big, a big brick building. It's not the outside that matters, it's what's inside. 
Nick Lawler is the general manager of the Littleton Electric Light and Water Departments. He oversees the drinking water for all the residents and businesses in this town of about 10,000. And today, he's showing off his latest project. This is ratepayer money, so we didn't put a lot of funding into decorations. <laughs> <laughs> the plant will remove PFAS and other contaminants from Littleton's drinking water, and it's costing about $16 million. That's a lot of money for a small town. The annual budget for the water department is usually around $4 million. Water and Sewer Superintendent Corey Godfrey points out where that money is going. I guess the first thing you notice is 10 very large filters, filter vessels. They look like big steel tanks, basically. The tanks that will filter PFAS are so big, they had to cut a hole in the floor to fit them. And you can see they're much, much larger. They go down into the basement. Whoa! Why are they so big? I guess they just have to be that big? So that's the carbon that you need to remove the amount of PFAS we have. In 2020, Massachusetts set a limit on the amount of PFAS in public drinking water. Since then, towns like Littleton have spent millions trying to remove it. The state limit is one of the strictest in the country, 20 parts per trillion. That's like a drop of water in a swimming pool. So that gives you a sense of really how toxic these chemicals are. Wendy Heiger-Bernays is a toxicologist at Boston University. She advised the state on the PFAS regulations. PFAS chemicals have been used in thousands of products since the mid-20th century, from food packaging to firefighting foam. They leach into groundwater from landfills, military bases, factories, and other locations. And they stick around for a very long time. Because they are so pervasive, Heiger-Bernays says, meeting the state's strict drinking water limit is difficult and expensive. It is a real problem because the cost of doing this, right, is enormous. Some towns have been able to recoup some costs from polluters if they can trace the contamination to a factory or military base. But in Littleton, it's unclear where the PFAS came from. The water department got state grants and loan forgiveness to help pay for the new plant. But the rest of the bill will be passed on to water customers as a 30% rate hike spread over decades. Again, Nick Lawler with Littleton Light and Water. It's, it's a lot of money. It's, it's a strain, especially during these economic times. And people are pulling at everything to try to pay their bills. Uh, but they understand this community is always you know, willing to pay for clean water. So far, 170 water systems in the state have found PFAS over the legal limit. Almost all have brought the contamination down to state levels. But the EPA is expected to announce federal regulations for PFAS in drinking water next month. And the agency has signaled that the new limits will be very low. That means communities across Massachusetts that thought they were in the clear could suddenly have PFAS levels above the legal limit and will have to pay to clean up their water. So I think that people are very concerned about that piece of it. Jennifer Peterson is the executive director of the Massachusetts Waterworks Association, an industry group. You know, substantial investments have been made in Massachusetts to the tunes of, you know, $100 million plus already. More help is on the way. The federal government is giving the state $38 million to address emerging contaminants like PFAS in drinking water. And last year, then-Attorney General Maura Healey sued manufacturers of firefighting foam containing PFAS. 
Healy said at the time that she was looking for a settlement, quote, in the millions. But it's doubtful that even millions will be enough to clean up water pollution this widespread. In the end, the cost of clean water will likely be borne by us all. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Our PFAS reporting continues tomorrow morning with a dilemma for homeowners who use private wells. For tips on how to reduce your exposure to these forever chemicals, visit WBUR.org. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Robin Young is here to tell us what's on the show. Good morning, Robin. Morning to you, and happy, happy Valentine's yes. Day. <laughs> Jinx. Somebody has to say it, right? Yeah. So happy Valentine's, happy Valentine's day, day to each of us and to all of you out there. And boy, uh, though it's a sad day. I mean, we're waking up with news yeah. of the Michigan State shooting, and this is on you know, the anniversary of the Parkland uh, Florida school shooting, and so we'll be looking at that today. But also, yesterday we brought you the story of the new Hulu documentary on the Sarah Lawrence College cult. You familiar with this? Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. A father who started a cult. Uh, with, I want to see this. Oh, you you have to see it, and you can hear our piece at uh, WBUR.org or hereandnow.org. We speak with one of the survivors who got out of the cult, but meanwhile, people are saying, how can this happen? And so today we're going to bring in Stephen Hassan, who's the local but also international renowned um, deproming, deprogramming expert. His, oh, interesting. Yeah, his book, here it is, Combating Cult Mind Control, was used by some of the people to get out of the Sarans, mm-hmm. Lawrence cult. And he'll talk to us not just about that cult, but what he sees as other cults, QAnon, uh, people who believe that uh, President Trump won the election. Mm-hmm. So we'll take a look at that. And then it is the big day. So we've got romance novels that people could maybe, if they're alone tonight, read a romance <laughs> novel. We have that for you at noon as well. I won't ask if that will be you. Uh, no, it won't be me. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the trustees. With exciting places across Massachusetts, adventure is in our nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org slash adventure. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Tasting History. That's the name of a new cookbook created by Lowell teacher Jessica Landers' immigrant high school students. It features delicious dishes from 21 countries, and Lander and two students share their recipes with us, along with their stories of home, love, and identity. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the global tug of war over the electric vehicle future, some movement. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. First, inflation cooled again last month. Numbers are just out. The consumer price index was up 6.4% in January compared to a year earlier. That's more than expected, but it's down from 6.5% in December. More than half the price increases were due to housing. Governments around the world have been trying to position their economies to benefit from a future where transportation is electric. Think manufacturing jobs and supply chains. Ford may be one small example of that shifting ground. The car company is cutting its workforce in Europe by 11% and investing more in electric vehicle manufacturing here in the U.S. For Ford, the changes are the latest in the series of cost-cutting and restructuring efforts. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. 
Ford is cutting costs following a brutal 2022 when it posted a $2 billion loss for the year. The automaker will cut 3,800 jobs in Europe, mostly in engineering. Because electric vehicles are less complex, it expects needing fewer engineers in three years' time. But Ford is also investing more into electrification. It plans to build a $3.5 billion battery factory in Michigan. These batteries will use different chemistry than most EV batteries currently employ. They'll be cheaper, but they'll also have less range. Ford says they'll make EVs accessible to more people. Manufacturing batteries in Michigan will also allow Ford to take advantage of new tax incentives. The Inflation Reduction Act provides a tax credit equal to 30% of a company's investment into new factories for electric vehicle components. Ford customers will get tax credits too, at least $3,750 worth for buying EVs made in North America. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. An investigation by the BBC has found online scammers are trying to profit from last week's earthquake in Turkey and Syria. They're using emotional content on social media to channel donations into their own bank accounts. The BBC's Hannah Gelbert has been looking at some of the posts. On TikTok, photos and videos of the devastation are being used to ask for donations. On Twitter, links to PayPal accounts and cryptocurrency wallets are tweeted alongside emotional pictures. One shows a firefighter cradling a child with collapsed buildings in the background. But it's not real. It's been created using AI, and the software has given the firefighter six fingers. The UK's Charity Commission has warned donors to be alert, and if in doubt, search the charity register before you donate. That's Hannah Gelbert with our editorial partners at the BBC. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up three-tenths of a percent. Dow and S&P futures are up in less than a tenth of a percent, with the Dow future up 10 points. NASDAQ futures down less than a tenth of a percent. Ten-year Treasury yield is at 3.695%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. And by the Slowdown Podcast. Join award-winning poet Major Jackson, the newest host of the Slowdown, for a hand-picked poem and a moment of reflection every weekday. Happy Valentine's Day. You can't put a price tag on love, but heartbreak sure does have a cost. Last year, around 70,000 people reported to the Federal Trade Commission that they'd been the victim of a romance scam. Their losses totaled some $1.3 billion, and that is probably an undercount, experts say. Dina Temple-Raston is the host and executive producer of Click Here, a podcast about the world of cyber and intelligence, which just did a Valentine's Day episode on this topic. She joins us now. Good morning, Dina. Good morning. So, you know, we hear romance scams and we assume that means people using a fake romance to swindle somebody out of their money. But you went deeper than that. It turns out romance scammers are also using people to launder money, to launder their other cybercrime money. How does that work? Well, scammers have really stepped up their game. They're now running multiple cons simultaneously, and they fold these romance scam victims into their other schemes. So, for example, they'll ask their victims to open bank accounts for them, and it never occurs to the victims that they're actually laundering money. And, you know, these aren't crimes that authorities turn a blind eye to, even if you were on the receiving end of a scam. Dina, you somehow got one of these scammers to talk to you on tape. What was he like? What can you tell us about him? 
Well, he wanted us to call him Tommy, and he's in Nigeria, where a lot of these scammers are. His biography, in some ways, is not what you'd expect. For one thing, he's a grad student working on a degree in politics in Nigeria, and he said he was running scams for about six months. A friend of his at school had put him in touch with some money men who were looking for people to run these scams. And he didn't need any experience, they said, because they would give him all he needed. They actually gave him a sort of kit, a kind of manual to get him started. I mean, are these scammers making a lot of money? Not really. He said he worked after his classes at school and he made about $100 a month, which is a reasonable amount of money in Nigeria, but not as much as you would think. What ends up happening is that the money goes to money men and they pay them a percentage of what he was able to convince people to send him. And the FTC said on average, the average victim was sending about $4,400 to these scammers. But Tommy said uh, he was asking for much smaller amounts of money and searching for vulnerable people. And we also try to search for people that is looking for a sugar daddy or sugar mommy online. And once I see that they are not paying, I will, I will let them go. This is sort of a version of the Nigerian prince just needs some money to unlock an account. And so... You send them $100 and they promise to send you much more. Mm. Did he give you any indication of how many people he scammed in the time he was doing this? Well, he wasn't doing this long. He was only doing this for about six months. He said he got into it as a way to make a little extra money to help support his family while he was in school. And it's pretty hard to find a regular job in Nigeria. He said he'd scammed about 20 people and that he never saw the money come in because it was sent to accounts that other people controlled, and then they would send him a commission later. And he said he stopped doing it because it just made him feel bad. The people he was cheating out of money weren't these kind of high rollers. They were ordinary people who didn't have much money either. And he said that after a while, that really weighed on his conscience. Dina Temple Raston hosts Click Here, a podcast about the world of cyber and intelligence. The latest episode about love scams is out now. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbert Hansen, Ariana Rosa, Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Stroder, Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen Morby. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Book sales declined last year, but not in the romance genre. And one Baltimore book club might help us understand why. I was like really raring to do a romance book club for the women who may feel nervous or made to feel ashamed of wanting to read this type of literature. Breaking up with the stigma on romance novels. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.